The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You know, we sort of learned how in the moment when it came down to it, they all had, according to the government, a, a, a mutual understanding that they were going to do whatever it took, whatever was necessary, any means necessary, to stop the certification or disrupt proceedings so that they could keep their preferred presidential candidate in power. And that was the, you know, the, the, the story that I think the government was able to tell. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 27th, 2023. The Proud Boys trial has gone to the jury. It is the longest January 6th case to date. It is the third case to involve seditious conspiracy charges against senior Proud Boys and folks who ended up being the pointy end of the spear on January 6, 2021. Only two reporters have sat through the entire case. They are Lawfare's own Roger Parloff and Brandy Buckman, who covered the case for the Empty Wheel site. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation because we covered a lot of ground over 62 days of trial they both joined me in the virtual jungle studio to go over it all what case did the government present against enrique tario and his colleagues what were the defenses what are the holes in the case and what can we reasonably expect from the jury it's the lawfare podcast april 27th parloff and buckman on the proud boys trial there's a huge amount of material to cover here, and I want to start just with where we are now. Roger, the case went to the jury yesterday or, or this morning. Give us a little, just a brief overview of what happened over the last 60-plus days. Yeah, uh, well, we, we had a trial of... Uh, five top Proud Boys, I should say four top Proud Boys with one sort of top soldier. They're Enrique Tario, the chairman of the Proud Boys at that on January 6th. Uh, Ethan Nordine, who was uh, the top guy on the ground January 6th. Um, Joe Biggs, who was probably the most well-known Proud Boy. He had a big Twitter following. He was associated with InfoWars. Zach Reel from Philadelphia, the head of the Philadelphia chapter. And then the fifth guy was Dominic Pizzola, who you've all seen. He's the guy smashing out the windows, the first windows through which rioters jump through on the Upper West Terrace, just south of the Senate wing door. So those were the five. Um, I, I don't have in front of me the, uh, it was about, I've forgotten the number of uh, government witnesses at this point. Um, we had about 19 defense witnesses and uh, we had many more government witnesses and uh, 62 days by my count, although that does include a couple days where the jurors did not sit 
So about 12 weeks. Brandy, can you add to that? You know, I would say that it was so evidence heavy too, um, in terms of everything that we saw from footage that I think has circulated for a long time, sort of out there in the media about January 6th, to some footage that really sort of I found surprising um, as we got towards the end of that long slog. It was a, a lot of, I think, historical material that was brought into evidence in that trial in terms of looking at what this organization did over January 6th. And Brandy, talk about the charges in this case and how they relate to other January 6th cases, uh, particularly the Oath Keepers case? Well, with the Oath Keepers case, uh, we also had a seditious conspiracy charge. And for the ringleader of their network, Stuart Rhodes, it's been a while since I've sort of dived into him here, so bear with me if I'm a little foggy on some of these details myself. I've been in Proud Boys land for a while. Uh, but with Rhodes, you know, he was outside of the Capitol, whereas Tario was not anywhere on the grounds that day. And so that's something that has sort of stuck out in my mind when I look at these two cases in terms of the top leader and the top charge. I think that with the seditious conspiracy charge, which essentially says that they've used force to oppose the United States government uh, in, in this proceeding, it might be different for Tario because Tario was sort of floating all above this out to the side. He was at a hotel in Baltimore on the 6th. He had been ordered to stay out of Washington on the 5th after he was arrested on the 4th uh, for burning a Black Lives Matter banner and for also, I believe, uh, he was picked up with some high-capacity magazines for firearms. And I, I'm very curious to see how these two two cases sort of play against each other with that top charge. So you guys have a unique vantage point on this case, which just wrapped up, which is that you are, I think, the only two reporters who sat through all of it. Uh, Roger, give us a little bit of a sense of what the two of you have been up to for the last 60 plus days, particularly for those who uh, are not on Twitter and who do not follow live blogs. Yeah, it's been pretty grueling. I actually did, uh, I had a death in the family and I had to take out a few days, but I was able to get transcripts for those. And uh, it, it actually was quite exciting at, at times uh, and grueling at times. And the, you had these five different lawyers who sometimes had conflicts in strategies and uh, five different defense lawyers. And um, obviously a camaraderie builds in the uh, media room. I think more concerning maybe is that over 62 days, inevitably, you must have cliques forming in among the jurors. And that's not necessarily a great thing for the prosecution because, you know, that could form factions and uh, you need a unanimous verdict on each count. So um, I'm sort of interested to see what happens there. But uh, it, I did not expect it to go this long. You know, we had been through the Oath Keepers case. This judge has a different I would say he's conscientious to a fault. This is Judge Tim Kelly. Some of us wondered if maybe he was a little uh, green still because of he, he, he was appointed uh, during the Trump administration. He, he was down the middle. He was a good judge, but he let the lawyers, uh, he, he, he really let them go on and on and on in a way that I, I have not seen before and um, or often. And uh, there was a concern that maybe he was letting things get away from him. At one point, he lost, at a few points, he lost his temper. But at one point, very characteristically, he said, if you don't stop, I'm going to give you a timeout. 
Yes. I'm going to give you a time out. <laughs> and uh, right. that is a, you know, that backfires. You know, if that's your big uh, tool uh, when you get angry, that, that sends a bad signal. And that also happened at the very, very beginning of the trial where he didn't uh, off, he didn't threaten anyone with a timeout. But when we did have a late defense attorney one morning, he was a little perturbed at that. He had warned all of the attorneys without singling anybody out. You know, if you can't make it to court on time, then I'm going to stop. I'm going to bring the jury in, tell them that we have to stop proceedings until all of the parties have arrived and then send them back out and make them wait until you show up. And so, you know, this was, I, I, as I remember it, after a week of a bit of tardiness on some of the defense attorney sides for whatever reason. But yeah, it was, uh, the threat of the timeout was pretty good. That was pretty funny. So let's turn, if we can, to a kind of uh, summary of the evidence presented uh, and uh, Brandy, let's start with the prosecution side. It's hard to to summarize, you know, sixty days of testimony in <laughs> in a few in a few minutes. But from your point of view, give us a sense of the government's case. What are they, uh, you know, other than the words conspiracy and seditious conspiracy? What is the story they're telling in this case? I think that the greater story that we're telling here with this case is we have the Proud Boys that from the point Donald Trump had name checked them in September 2020 at the presidential debates, there was a sort of energy, I think, that had picked up uh, an anger that the prosecution showed throughout all of their communications that had ramped up as, you know, the fight in 2020 continued uh, with Trump. And after Trump no longer had any recourse through our legal system, we saw how the Proud Boys sort of coalesced at different rallies, uh, the Stop the Steal rally in December at the Million MAGA March the month, the month before that in November. And we saw how, you know, their, I think their uh, already built-in tendencies, what we know about the Proud Boys when they're out there, out there in the street, sort of manifested themselves with all that was happening with the election. And so as we ramped up to January 6th and what the prosecutors attempted to show the jury, was as we got to that point and they felt that they no longer had any recourse, Trump might not have any recourse. And then Trump ignited them on the 19th, essentially, to come to D.C. for the 6th. That was the last stand for them. And as we sort of got into witness testimony, including from uh, mostly from defendant Rell, Zachary Rell, and some from Pozzola, Dominic Pozzola, you know, we sort of learned how in the moment when it came down to it, they all had, according to the government, a, a, a mutual understanding that they were going to do whatever it took, whatever was necessary, any means necessary, to stop the certification or disrupt proceedings so that they could keep their preferred presidential candidate in power. And that was the, you know, the, the, the story that I think the government was able to tell um, through all of the footage that they brought together and through all of the communications and, you know, some of it private uh, until it was extracted off of their devices and a lot of it public. So I think it was, uh, I think they did a fair job of sort of taking all of that information and distilling it down. Yeah, what I, I obviously agree. And uh, just to fill in a few extra things, uh, right after the Trump tweet, on December 19th, you know, uh, come to D.C. will be wild. That same day, Tario and Biggs begin talking to each other about, let's get radical, let's get some real men into this chapter. And then the next day, Tario forms something called the Ministry of Self-Defense. It's a new chapter. It's a national chapter. It's composed of members of local chapters. It's highly secretive. They want people that will do what they're told, uh, follow leaders, uh, and it's looking forward to January 6th. And they create a MOSD, that's Ministry of Self-Defense Leaders Chat, 
in Telegram and eventually a members chat in Telegram, MOSD. So that's the core of the conspiracy of the planning. And as you approach January 6th, the uh, rhetoric in those chats becomes more and more apocalyptic, references to revolution, references to the capital, maybe the main theater of operations should be the capital. On January 4th, Terrio says on a voicemail, um, so you want to storm the capital. And uh, there's somebody else uh, at one point that's talking about, you know, we, we ought to be ra- raising bail money. And then, and of course, on January 6th itself, they are the, the tip of the spear. They are at uh, four of the first crucial breaches, and they are right on the front lines. The Peace Circle breach, they are they arrive minutes before the breach. They arrive around 1250 and the breach is at 1253. And you see this big, you know, 200 people arrive. It, it's calm before and they, they get on megaphones and, and, and then the breach is, is a couple minutes later. And then they're, at a, they, they're right at the, this uh, black metal fence. They help dismantle it. Uh, they're right at the scaffolding where where there's a staircase. A proud boy named Milkshake, who has marched with them, topples that. They go up to the next level. Pozzola helps, is uh, uh, screaming at uh, police officers there. And then, of course, Pozzola is the one who finally smashes the first windows and, and so that the first rioters can enter. So it's that too, the, that sequence of crucial, the crucial roles at all of these uh, early breaches that that's supposed to show concerted action. And it's, it's sort of, it, it's powerful. It's not, they have not shown planning from the start, but the facts themselves suggest concerted action. And Roger, what would be a comparable summary of the defense case, or maybe I should say the defense cases, since there are five of them? Certainly no plan. And you have, you know, the government looked through maybe 500,000 telegram messages and never found a concrete plan beforehand. And by plan, do we mean a uh, uh, Enrique Tario, as you just said, on January 4th, said, so you want to storm the Capitol. That kind of sounds at least like a goal, if not a plan. What is the plan that is allegedly missing here? Well, of course, he never says, let's do it. <laughs> he says, so, you know, that's sort of a question. He's arrested that say later that day. It throws everything into chaos. And all the the plan is to go to the Washington Monument, and then Nordine leads this march, and it does seem sort of like nobody knows what's happening. And several people in the march said we didn't know what was happening, and they go to the Capitol, and I'm giving the defense case now. There's a better, you know, there's there's strong things the prosecution can say here. But they go to some food trucks, and they would say there are uh, that the some people say, well, we expected to go back to the rally, the ellipse, and then others say, gee, it seemed like at the food trucks, some people were saying we should go back to our hotels. There was even one guy who said Nordine wanted to go back to his hotel that he was hung over. But, of course, they don't go back to their hotel. They go to the Peace Circle, and they arrive there at exactly the perfect time. But, you know, it is true that with 500,000 texts and uh, and telegram messages, you might have looked for somebody to say, here's what we're going to do. And there is an element of spontaneity. and, And there were two cooperating witnesses. They also, they did not describe a plan. It sounds like there was an element of spontaneity. Uh, but once the barricades fell, everyone knew what to do. In fact, 
for me, there was a, an important point that the government did not mention. Maybe they didn't think it was helpful. But one of the cooperating witnesses, Matt Green, said, you know, he was fairly low-level guy. He was with Pozzola. And he wondered, you know, during the march, he kept wondering, what is this about? What are we doing? Why are we moving away from the ellipse? And, uh, you know, he thought they were going to see the speech. And they went to the Capitol. And, and then when the barricade at the peace uh, circle fell, he thought, oh, shit, this is it. And that was his testament. Oh, shit, this is it. And in a way, that was the reality. And that was sort of the government's case that, yes, there was an element of spontaneity, but everyone had been primed and knew what to do then. And in fact, that was emphasized in in the government's summation that conspiracy, there isn't a duration element. You could wait until, uh, I think the words were, so long as the defendant joined at any time, even if not until January 6th, even if not until the barricades at the peace circle already came down, that's enough. So that's the case. It's not as, you know, it's not as strong as I think I thought it might have been before the case started. There is no pre-planning. And and uh, so some of the defense, so most of the defendants focused on that, even though that's not technically uh, the legal definition. Uh, you know, you don't need pre-planning. You need a common understanding. Assistant U.S. Attorney Nadia Moore, I thought, gave a very good metaphor for this. And she said to the jury, imagine it's as if you are at a red light and a Mustang pulls up next to you and he revs his engine and you rev your engine. And then when the light turns green, you didn't know each other before that moment. You had never met. There was no plan to race each other at the light. But you both understood when the light turned green, it was time to go. And you both sped off. And I thought that this was a very good way to sort of couch what Roger just explained, too, in terms of how uh, spontaneous it was, but that there was an understanding in the moment as they were advancing, you know, according to the prosecution, that this was what they had been talking about for weeks this is what they had understood the reason was to some degree they were there, why they were there, what the intent was behind being there. So I think that that was a, a good way to sort of put that in, in, in layman's terms for folks. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Yeah, so one of the interesting things about this defense, it seems to me, Brandy, is how similar it actually is to the Oath Keepers uh, defense, which was, as I recall anyway, hey, we weren't really there to storm the Capitol. We were there because the president, we were hoping the president was going to invoke the Insurrection Act. And so we were going to be the militia. And then all of a sudden stuff started happening. And so it was just kind of spontaneous. So it can't be a seditious conspiracy because, hey, we were just waiting for the president to invoke the Insurrection Act. And we were going to be a force under the law on that. Whereas here you have the, hey, we were just there to do what? what? I mean, in order to advance this theory that there's, you know, no plan to, to, it was just kind of a spontaneous action. In order to advance that theory, you kind of got to present a, 
well, what were you doing there with, you know, crude weapons and and uh, a high degree of organization and a ministry of self-defense uh, signal group? So what's what's the what's the Proud Boys version of the? Oh, we were just uh, waiting to be the militia when the president invokes the insurrection act. You know, I think for the Proud Boys, there there was this through line as we went throughout the trial that sort of hinged on two factors. It was well, we were there to have our voices heard, and I I didn't know that this was happening when it was happening, uh, or you know, I didn't know the proceeding was happening when it was happening, or I thought Pence had been evacuated, and then. As more and more evidence came out against them, and I think the case by the prosecution started to pick up steam about midway through, uh, you know, the the reliance on, well, you know, it was my right, basically, to be there, but I, I didn't know that this was a restricted area. And if it was, it, it didn't matter anyway. I mean, maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but I think that that was sort of the big takeaway from the defense, which was very thin. And I, I don't know how that will ultimately cut against them uh, in terms of when we compare it to what happened with the Oath Keepers. But, you know, ironically with this, you know, the Oath Keepers would sort of uh, make fun of the Proud Boys as being a disorganized, chaotic rabble rousers, you know, couldn't trust them, didn't like them. Oath Keepers took themselves much more seriously, you know, military men much more organized. And I think that that has sort of shown itself out in both of these trials. But where the Proud Boys defense, I think, struggles to hold credibility is, okay, well, you know, if at any point you wanted to have your voice heard, I don't think the the government pushed against that. But where they did draw the line was, you know, when you were impeding officers to do that, or when you were put, potentially putting uh, members of Congress at risk, uh, when some of you were, uh, you know, or t- uh, uh, people who traveled with you that day were accused of assaulting officers on the grounds that day. You know, so I don't think that they they have a very uh, a strong case for their defense. And, you know, while many times, especially at the beginning of the trial, and we heard this too with the Oath Keepers, you know, the Proud Boys as an organization are not on trial. It's the individuals. And the prosecution was very pointed to outline that for the jury. But the defense, I think, like to sort of muddy that line where it was, well, these are just men participating in a fraternal drinking club who have a political problem, um, as it was described at a, at a point. But, you know, I, I just I don't think that it's as it's as credible in as some ways, even as absurd as they seem with the Oath Keepers case uh, for the reasons that they're there. And I, and I think that if the jury does sort of. Uh, have sympathy for the defense. It could come down to, you know, individual acts and how all of their communications sort of appear to them. I, I agree with part of that. Uh, with the uh, with the Oath Keepers, they were doing security details on January right, 6th. Yeah. That was a legitimate thing. They had a legitimate purpose for being there. And despite all of their rhetoric, and there was this question of whether was it all live action role playing. They had all these guns in Virginia, but of course, Virginia permits you to have all those guns in a, in a comfort inn. And uh, they didn't leave the comfort inn, the guns. And they had these assignments and they had nothing to do with the start of the riot. They did, they did not topple any barricades. They, they really were like, you know, aside from the, their uniforms and the guns. And, and they're marching in stack formation right. up the stairs. I mean, yeah. query whether, whether the Oath Keepers would have been quite as much in the public consciousness uh, if they had walked like normal people. Yeah, because right. Right. Yeah. Uh, otherwise they did what, by an, ex- except for one of them, by and large, what, you know, the 500 misdemeanants did. They went inside, did nothing, came out. Some of them did did do stuff inside. So, But they weren't involved in causing the riot. And um, here they were crucial at various points, but their rhetoric was a little less obvious than the Oath Keepers. 
So in, in some ways, they're, they're, they're mirror images of, of each other. But as Brandy was saying, there isn't really that defense of we were on security details. They arrive at 1030 and don't go to the speech. They immediately go to the Capitol. Now, they're, they're, you know, what they say is, well, we did that for a, uh, we wanted to do photo ops. And they do photo ops. And they, they do, you know, there's, a, there's an argument that they're aimless and they're doing what they usually do, which is, is march. But um, along the way, Nordine is riling them up. He is reminding them that they no longer support the police. They're angry about something that happened in December, when and and they're angry about Tario being arrested for it, and the police have abandoned them. They're no longer saying back the blue; they're saying back the yellow, and which is their colors, yellow and black. And their their chants are changing. Instead of "fuck Antifa," the chant is now "whose house." Our house, whose capital, our capital, and as they cross, as they pass, please, they say, pick a side, honor your oath, you know, traitor. So um, they're riling each other up, they're riling normies up, and they and then they arrive at this crucial place, the peace circle, and uh, with megaphones and 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 the barricades fall. So they they don't have. A defense, and in fact, one of the most incredible and, and backfires of the thing, uh, Zach Real testified, and when asked about, you know, that barricade falling, because he was right there, he was filming it with his own camera, and there's a dispute about whether somebody says, and it, 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 it sounds like his voice says, "Fuck them, storm the Capitol." And real is right up front, and uh, his his lawyer asked him, "What were you doing?" And he said words to the effect that, uh, "I was, you know, I thought there were stages. I thought and speeches. I I wanted to get a, a good seat at the stages, and I saw thought so. I was I was running past to get to the stages. He and then he says." You're looking at me. You, you're giving me a strange look, but that's the God's honest truth. So he was saying his own lawyer couldn't believe what he was saying. It was so crazy. So that that was a, a bad moment for the defendants. Yeah. So let's talk about one particular defendant, Enrique Tario, who I imagine has a slightly different defense, which is that he wasn't there, and all of this pointy end of the spear and being at the key locations at the pivotal moments where the barriers fall don't really apply to you if you're in Baltimore. Uh, what is the, the, specific, the specific circumstances of Enrique Tario both create a different defense, I would imagine, but also uh, require some answer from the prosecution you know, given his particular circumstances. So what what does the jury have uh, about Enrique Tario in specific uh, that has to be chewed over that's different from the rest of the defendants? The first thing is moments before he's arrested, he, he knows he's being followed. He, he senses he's going to be arrested. He has a, a phone call with Joe Biggs. And then after the phone call, he texts him or telegrams him and says, whatever happens, make it a spectacle. And then while the event is occurring, January 6th, while the riot is going on, he is putting stuff out first on parlor. He says, don't fucking leave, for instance, and proud of my boys and uh, some other things on parlor. And then at about 2.40 p.m., he writes his own, there's a, a telegram chat for high-level Proud Boys called The Elders. It's called Skull and Bones. He, he writes, uh, make no mistake, we did this. That's at 2.40 p.m. So that's after the Pozzola smashes the windows at 2.13. Also, 
at some at about 3 p.m. the film of uh, that day, the, the video of Pozzola breaking the windows has been is already out on the the internet, and uh, Tario has seen it, and he and Bertino in text are uh, joking around uh, very proudly about the fact that it's one of their guys, and um, Tario compares him to George Washington. One other thing, um, when when he creates MOSD, nominally MOSD, you know, they need to tell the it, it's secret, but they the Proud Boy organization knows it's being all being created, and they wonder what it is. So nominally, it's supposed to be to prevent. There was a stabbing at the December twelfth event, December twelfth twentieth. So it's to prevent things like that, uh, stabbings. And, but at the end of his explanation to the elders, which is his the top umbrella group of Proud Boys, he writes, quote, whispers 1776, unquote. So the, the implication is he's, he's telling them the real purpose is January 6th and some sort of revolutionary activity. So uh, it's, it's things like that. Brandy, what do you think is... is- Tario uh, more or less vulnerable given that he is A, not present, but B, uh, whispers 1776. By the way, if you guys are planning a revolt on Telegram, uh, probably best to avoid the whispers 1776 text, uh, you know, and the make no mistake, we did this stuff. Is he more or less vulnerable than the guys who are kind of on the scene who can say there's no plan? I, you know, I was just there to to uh, express, to be heard, but end up physically breaking windows and the like. I think that there's a, a chance that, you know, it's viewed that way by the jury that Tario is somehow less culpable, even though he's sort of the puppet master pulling the strings. And we understand, or the jury has, you know, been shown evidence that, you know, he had assigned himself uh, essentially their leader of marketing. You know, so this is an individual who we know is aware of the influence uh, he wants to have not only over members of his organization, but the press as well. You know, he, uh, you know, we, we heard evidence of how he referred to himself as Goebbels as a, you know, Nazi propaganda minister questioning if that was how he was behaving because of his slick communication skills with, with, uh, with the press and with his own members when he would talk about the proud boys and getting them out in the media. So I think that the, you know, his credibility, I, I think has been well shot through in terms of whether or not he's a, a trustworthy or, you know, credible individual, but you know, he wasn't there. And so if that matters enough to the jury, I don't know, but I think that, you know, he does have a good few weeks where he's talking about, setting, you know, setting things up. He does set up the Ministry of Self-Defense. You know, he does keep that secretive. And the the prosecutors did say during the trial that, uh, you know, look, there were many times that they met uh, on Zoom conferences that we don't have recordings of. And we did see, and the jury did see, a very long video of one of the, uh, and I think it was the initial Mazdi meeting where they were bringing people into, into the, into the fold. And someone asked, you know, uh, are we going to talk about January 6th? And I believe it was asked to Tario twice. And Tario said, you know, well, we'll talk about that later. Or, you know, and he would, he would silo information down uh, to people who it turned out would be uh, his co-defendants and, you know, the leaders on January 6th. So I think that there's a big question mark that, that looms over him. But I don't know if uh, that will be as effective. We'll see. As to the other defendants, do any of them have uh, similarly individualized claims that affect their case, but not the others? Well, Real is a, a little less exposed than Nordine and Biggs, just fewer Telegram chats. Uh, I would say his 
testimony sort of backfired rather spectacularly, not just because of the yeah. thing I mentioned, but his lawyer had been mentioning throughout, this was a such a strategic uh, miscarriage, but um, his lawyer had been emphasizing a, 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 that he didn't assault anyone, he didn't destroy any property. He, he, he was different, you know, and maybe the Philadelphia chapter was different, you know, just, just more of a drinking club. And he looks callow and young. And so it was sort of a, a good claim. But when he took the stand, he was cocky, he was strong, he was angry. And then what happened was his lawyer, there was, there were going to be two days, Thursday and Friday, where a juror couldn't make it. So there was going to be a four day weekend. And his lawyer did not want the cross to begin before that four day weekend. And so she filibustered and, and it was pretty obvious. Uh, Brandy was there. I, I yeah. this was while I was out of the country, but even from the transcript, I'll, she can discuss it. Over that four-day weekend, apparently, an open-source person, one of these... Uh, Online sleuths. <laughs> yeah, found footage that appeared to show real pepper-spraying a police officer. And then, the, over that weekend, they, they got CCTV footage of him spraying the police officer, and then eventually they got body-worn camera footage, two body-worn camera footage of him pepper spraying a police officer. And they presented this to him, and he lied. And it was devastating. And, and so I, I don't know if – before that happened, I would say maybe he had a better chance than the others. Perhaps he still does because he is less – in the telegrams, but that 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 was not great for him. And then Pozzola is a, is his own story, and and actually his lawyer was very good. I thought Stephen Metcalf, although in a way he's the most violent. You know, he breaks the windows, he steals a riot shield. He he did a good job. He he really doesn't know the others. There's a possibility that he's in a special category. You know, I think up until Rel testified. Uh, certainly in terms of his own conduct, he looked like uh, he, he, he came off a bit cleaner before he came up uh, to testify. And it was sort of questionable what was going to happen at that point. And I think what was sort of a turning point for me in the trial at that point with Rel was, well, now we have Rel essentially cast dirt on all of them by by his testimony because he su he sort of blew apart i think whatever credibility they had sort of uh, slowly been building to at that point and with the lull in the trial and how long the jury had already been there for those fireworks to go off when they did i think it might have set off a few light bulbs in terms of the prosecution's uh you know attempt to you know argue this here was, you know, yes, uh, these folks are uh, erratic and they have hot tempers. They're combustible, you know, and I think that that sort of made it even more interesting when Pozzola came forward, because even though Metcalf was able to sort of clean him up uh, when he would uh, sort of have his own outbursts and his, his testimony as well was remarkable because the first day that he was on the stand, he was charming as could be when he was under direct and likable and affable. He expressed remorse. Uh, it looked nothing like he did, you know, in all the video that uh, people have seen of him bashing apart the window, you know, his clean cut in a suit with glasses and uh, you, you, you started to sort of see, oh, well, you know, maybe this is just uh, a little bit more believable. But then by the time we got to his cross-examination, he started out okay being sort of even keeled with Assistant U.S. Attorney Eric Kennerson. But within maybe I would say a half hour to an hour of him being up there, it all started to fall apart, just like it fell apart with Rel. 
very pointed, very angry. And he himself uh, told the, the jury that had been sitting there for all this time. This was a you know corrupt trial, phony charges. And I think that that was pretty remarkable that that's the way that it turned for them. And I think, you know, when we talk about the unanimity of how the jury has to look at this and in all of their actions, you know, if we can talk about the individual charges for Rel and we can talk about the individual charges for Pozzola, but I think it would be interesting to see how this shakes out and how the jury sort of connects what they heard and how they interpreted the testimony from both Rel and Pozzola and how that plays for Biggs and for Tario uh, and for Nordine. You know, I, I, I sort of felt like Biggs got a got kid gloves through most of this trial, to be perfectly honest. All right. So, Brandy, that segues nicely to the question of what we're anticipating. You've sat through 62 by Rogers Count days of, of this trial, and the jury now has it. In your gut, what's the, when, when they come out and say they have a verdict, assuming they do, what, what are you expecting? You know, when it came to the Oath Keepers trial with Rhodes, I had a very strong feeling that the sedition charge was going to stick. I did not feel that way with this trial. I I don't have I don't have a lot of confidence that the steepest charge will stick. I think that the other charges in terms of conspiracy to obstruct I think there's a good chance that that will stick, but I think that, you know, uh, the the lesser charges definitely. I I I have I have a strong sense that, you know, the evidence was just overwhelmingly uh, overwhelming on that end. But I you know I I'm a little a little concerned about how the top charges are going to play out with this case, just because there was so much um, that went on over these 62 days where there was a lot of stopping and starting. And there was a lot of confusion, I think, that was sowed on behalf of the defense as they were making their argument that could make it harder for, for, the, uh, for the jurors to grapple with. So I'm a little less confident predicting what the outcome will be on this one. Roger, how about you? You, uh, for, for uh, listeners who may not remember, you wrote a piece while the jury was out during the Oath Keepers trial that anticipated with enormous precision precisely what that jury was going to end up doing. Uh, so, you know, time for a repeat performance. Uh, give us the news before it happens here. What, what, what's this jury like? Well, I, I hope people don't look up that article because they might not <laughs> agree that it was exactly so prescient. But, but I think they got over the hump with seditious conspiracy, but, but uh, at least with respect to Nordine and Biggs, it could be another split. And like I said, I, I think there might be factions in the jury. And if, you know, the one sort of logical compromise would be to say, okay, not sedition, but corrupt obstruction of an official right. proceeding. And especially the, the substantive count, you know, they, they all went in there. The trouble, of course, there, and it's not, it's not up to the jury, but uh, it's increasingly looking like that charge it, it will eventually be thrown out because at least a number of judges don't know if it it should be applied to any of the January sixth cases. So I'm, I, you know, that would be a that's a side point, but it troubles me greatly. But it, it could be uh, there are three conspiracy charges, and so uh, they could go with one of the so-called lesser conspiracy charges. If they don't buy the conspiracy, of course, then Tario is home free because he's in Baltimore. You can't really hold him responsible for anything happened that happened. And many of the other charges against the defendants fall apart as well. So um, I'm not very certain. I'm concerned about the case. I, I think... I think they got over the hump, at least with uh, some of the defendants for seditious conspiracy. Roger, you've mentioned twice the possibility of factions on the jury. 
before we wrap, just uh, give us a sense of uh, why you are concerned about that and what evidence there is that the jury has cliques that have developed. It's mainly, uh, you know, the length of the trial. There are some things I, I can't uh, source. And then I do know that I mentioned that there was a juror that was absent those two days when uh, uh, Thursday, a Thursday and Friday. And that was uh, uh, at that time, the government wanted to just dismiss that juror and go with an alternate because, and, and not delay the trial for two days. And all five defendants wanted to keep that juror. So we don't have a good view of the jurors generally from the, uh, from the media room. We don't have any view of the jurors really from the media room, but some people do periodically go inside and try to look at them. But that was an indication that apparently the defense hoped that see, see that juror is probably in their camp. All right. We are going to leave it there. Roger Parloff, Brandy Buckman, thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks, Ben. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. And I just want to give a big shout out on this episode to Marcy Wheeler of the Empty Wheel site, who is the only publisher other than Lawfare to commit herself to end-to-end coverage of this case. If you think this kind of coverage is valuable, you should be supporting Lawfare. You should probably also be supporting Empty Wheel. You can do the former by becoming a material supporter of Lawfare by subscribing to our Substack or our Patreon, patreon.com slash lawfare. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer this episode is the intrepid, uncommon Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. And as always, thanks for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.